get the grown-ups who come to our events to take risks, to engage with the scientists that we have. And, you know, what the museum hit on a long time ago, and not just our museum, lots of other museums have discovered, is that alcohol is a great way to get grown-ups to play and take yeah. risks and um, maybe fail at something and try again. Things that we don't really like to do in our everyday lives. That was Allison Campbell. She's the coordinator of the After Hours program at the Museum of Life and Science. And along with Dr. Marsha Penner. And then I say, yeah, that's definitely real brain. Do you want to touch it? We're talking about how museums are creating effective learning environments for adults through alcohol. Welcome back to another great episode. I'm Mike Stojic, and this is Make It a Double. We're the podcast that talks booze, spirits, history, mixology, and the people and stories that make it great. And in this episode, we're going to explore one of the more clever ways that museums are reaching out and gaining strong support for its adult patrons. It's an after-hours program that mixes some of our favorite adult beverages and learning We're going to travel to the Museum of Life and Science in Durham, North Carolina, and the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. We'll hear from Allison Campbell. She's the coordinator of the museum's after-hours program. She'll talk about drinking and learning through events like cocktails and cosmonauts and the science of wine. Then, neuroscientist Dr. Marsha Penner of UNC joins us to share her stories of why she loves the After Hours program and helps us understand whether we are super tasters or non-tasters. It's a science of taste and will help explain why you don't like the taste of certain beers or liquors. It's a science-packed episode with a boozy flavor, so grab your favorite drinks and, uh, I don't know, geek out with us for a little bit. So my name is Allison Campbell. I'm the manager for fundraising events at the Museum of Life and Science here in Durham, North Carolina. I've been here at the museum for a couple of years. And the biggest part of my job is developing and coordinating the Museum After Hours program. And these are education events for the 21 and over crowd. Uh, It is our um, attempt to really engage an adult audience in learning about science and science as a way of knowing about their community and their world, um, which is all part of our mission here at the museum. And of course, you know, we have to think a lot about how grown-ups learn differently from kids. <laughs> so a large part of my job is thinking about, um, you know, what will kind of get the grown-ups who come to our events to take risks, to engage with the scientists that we have who bring hands-on exhibits and hands-on activities and experiments that that people can try and you know what the museum hit on a long time ago and not just our museum lots of other museums have discovered is that alcohol is a great way to get grown-ups to 
play and take yeah. risks and um, maybe fail at something and try again. Things that we don't really like to do in our everyday lives um, are things that we've somehow learned not to do as we got older. So our events are really about encouraging grown-ups to be social, to play, um, to try new things, and hopefully walk out of here understanding something or having learned about something or having had a moment of wonder. That's, that's our goal. Allison, I love the concept. I think it's so awesome that you guys are doing this. So how difficult was it to get started and really convince the museum leadership that this is the way to move forward? So the After Hours series started in 2010. Um, Science of Wine was the first event, um, and it was very much in response to conversations about how to engage adults. Uh, I think we're really seeing by a lot of people in the community as a children's museum, but our mission is very much guided by the desire to engage lifelong learners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we saw a portion of our audience that we weren't reaching, um, you know, particularly young adults. And uh, so After Hours was a, a first step in, in bringing those folks into the museum. Um, and certainly in the beginning, there was um, some anxiety about how our, our core audience, our families, are going to feel about sort of inviting this different very much more adult experience into the museum. You know, there are very basic logistical concerns. You know, we can't have, uh, you know, exhibits sticky the next morning because somebody (laughs) spilled a cocktail on them. Um, So it took a a great commitment um, on the part of the team that was doing these events to really promise and then demonstrate that it would not have an impact on the sort of day-to-day operations of the museum. We would make sure the museum was clean, um, ready to go the next morning for all of the families that would be here bright and early. Um, So once we were able to demonstrate that, I think um, some of those concerns were set aside. And of course, the events have grown in popularity. Um, They're now uh, raising, you know, substantial funds to support the, the operations of the museum, everything from, you know, feeding our animals to maintaining our exhibits and supporting our, our science programs. Um, and so they're now seen as a more legitimate part of that, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of, of that stuff we have to do to keep the lights on. And so I, I'm proud that the Museum of Life and Science actually was one of the first in, in our area to really take the risk um, and find creative ways to engage the adult audience. Um, but they're definitely, it, it's fairly recent um, phenomenon in the museum world, I think. Um, So when you run these events, are your guests still able to play and explore throughout the museum? Or are we confined to some like large classroom? Uh, And I ask because your exhibits are so interactive and so much fun. That's the only thing I want to do is, you know, learn about science of wine and cocktails and cosmonauts and then run around and explore the museum on my own. This museum is all about, I mean, we're really about, you know, our tagline is no wonder. We really want people to have those moments of wonder and, you know, to get to that point, we need people to feel comfortable um, to step outside their comfort zone a little bit. And that's true for the toddlers and the kids and middle schoolers who are here. And it's something that we really try to think about carefully um, when we fill the museum with grownups on a Thursday night. Uh, So it's not just about, um, you know, the great vendors that we have who come out and offer samples of their latest wonderful drink or some yummy food. Um, You know, that's all part of it. And a lot of those vendors take the time to really talk about the science behind what they do. Uh, But hopefully also all of that um, facilitates 
people getting into the exhibits and making a paper airplane to think about aerodynamics in our launch lab or to, um, you know, run around in our sound space and think about, you know, speed and, and sound. And, you know, there's all sorts of incredible exhibits that we have that a lot of these grownups, you know, maybe remember coming as a kid on a field trip back when they were growing up in Durham or in the Triangle. They maybe haven't been back since. Um, so there's also, that's another element that I think is important. Uh, there's a lot of nostalgia for the museum in the community. We've been around since 1946. So lots of folks in mm -hmm. the area grew up coming here and obviously stopped coming at some point. And then they're coming back for the first time in a long time. These are largely folks who maybe don't have kids yet. They're not members. Um, so they don't have that reason to come, that hook. Um, and so nostalgia is a big part of it. I mean, they remember what it was like to, you know, see the tornado or to walk on the dinosaur trail and some of those things. And so we were able to kind of harness some of that too. I, I think that's really awesome because you talked a little earlier and we're sort of talking about it now too, bringing the adults in and letting them play on the same sort of stuff that the, the kids would play on. So for the families with kids who come to the museum, um, you know, generally they're you, you know, they, they put their parent hat on and they're acting a certain way because they have their kids and there's other parents with other kids and, you know, they can't let loose the same way they could if it was just parents around, you know, or just adults around. And then when you create these after hour programs, it allows them to come in and really enjoy the exhibits because I know I don't have any kids, but my brother does. And we've been to the Marbles Museum and a few others. And, you know, I think there's some neat stuff, but I can't. <laughs> what am I going to do? Run around with a bunch of little kids and play. Yeah. But I'd love to come back and do this sort of stuff at night. So I think it's wonderful because we we want to dream and adventure and have fun, too, and build paper airplanes and throw them and race and, you know, maybe have a little drink. And I think these programs really help do that. And, and then I also think it brings another demographic, like you said, the the, the adults that don't have kids but want to still experience this sort of stuff. So you're kind of joining two worlds together that probably wouldn't play very often, if that makes sense at all. Yeah, and you did actually describe our demographic pretty well. The majority, so we about 30% of our mm -hmm. um, attenders are under 30, and about 30% are between 30 and 40. Um, so, you know, we've got, hopefully, we've got some, you know, young millennials coming in the door, um, and they're playing alongside the parents who come maybe frequently with kids, um, but are experiencing the museum in a different way for themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a pretty uh, interesting and eclectic audience. I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm going to make an assumption because it appears that there are two kinds of vendors that participate in the after hours program. We have the scientist and then the alcohol industry professional. So whether brewer, distiller or winemaker, um, and again, maybe an unfair stereotype, but I'll just assume that your beer, wine, spirit guys are more extroverted people where I imagine a scientist probably is a bit more introverted. I don't know if that's true, but you know, one of those things where the interaction and some of the communication may be on a level that's so far uh, above some of your guests that it may be difficult to convey information. Does, does that make sense? So, and, and I also say that I'm, I'm, I really don't know any scientists. I'm heavily influenced by the show, The Big Bang Theory. 
And now remember, Newton realized that Aristotle was wrong and force was not necessary to maintain motion. So let's plug in our 9.8 meters per second squared as A and we get force, earth gravity, equals mass times 9.8 meters per second per second. So we can see that MA equals MG. And what do we know from this? Newton was a really smart cookie. <laughs> oh, is that where Fig Newtons come from? No, Fig Newtons are named after a small town in Massachusetts. But don't write that down. <laughs> now, if M-A equals M-G, what does that imply? I don't know. What, but how can you not know? I just told you. Have you suffered a recent blow to the head? <laughs> I'm sorry. Have you suffered a recent blow to the head? But, uh, you know, when you think about it, a lot of what you're doing here, especially in this, this after hours component, is largely a social endeavor, just as much as it is a learning experience. So I'm just kind of curious, have you had any issues uh, with vendors being, you know, way too intelligent or, you know maybe some of them not knowing enough science you know from the wine spirit industry guys i'm just kind of curious whether or not there's a vetting process and how do you get the right vendors to really promote this sort of experience no i mean you bring up a really good point um we live in a very science rich environment here in durham which is great it's amazing the number of our vendors um distillers brewers who have a hard science background um you know one of the guys over at bull city cider works here in durham you know worked on a phd in chemistry i think and so he's able to really come in and talk about the nitty-gritty science behind what he does. And um, to be honest, that's how we get a lot of the vendors anyway. They're tickled by the idea of getting to talk <laughs> about the, the very real science and couple that with our very science-savvy audience who will, you know, our, our guests who attend these events will come up. And if you want to talk science, they are right there with you. You cannot get too sophisticated. You cannot get too geeky on the science um, for them. In fact, after we do a lot of evaluation after these events, we get, I just got 72, um, you know, survey responses on science of wine last week. And no matter how much science I put in these events, they always want more. And I just think that's really exciting, the demand. I mean, they're, you know, our, we've branded these events in such a way uh, that they're fun, they're, you know, you hopefully feel like you get your money's worth. And then there's this science part of it that just really is the reason people are coming, I, I truly believe. So over the years, we've developed some really wonderful relationships with um, groups from UNC and Duke and NC State, um, folks who we know are really strong, informal science communicators. Um, and the informal part is key because it's not somebody standing in the front of a classroom giving a lecture on some kind of content. You know, we need people who can communicate that hard science in a very casual, conversational way, in a way that's accessible to maybe somebody who, during the day, is a, you know, a fourth grade teacher or is an IT guy or whatever, but who has this interest, um, who's willing to go there with you. Um, we need you to be able to, to communicate clearly um, these very sophisticated ideas. Um, and so we've, you know, we've over the years... Um, not invited some folks back because they just 
couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, brilliant scientists who just it's couldn't, couldn't communicate in this environment yeah. or, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, it's kind of an intimidating environment, I think, for some, some scientists because you could literally get any kind of question. And, you know, again, people are really, really interested and engaged. Um, so they might ask you really tough questions out of left field. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have some favorites. Um, we work with the Duke Institute for Brain Sciences a lot, um, the Department of Neurology and Psychology at UNC, um, the Food Sciences Program at NC State, the Rob Dunn Lab at NC State, School of Ants. They do great stuff. So for example, we're putting together cocktails and cosmonauts right now. And so the science at that event will focus less on the distilling process, um, you know, certainly some of our vendors will talk about that. But we've also got um, a couple of uh, solar system ambassadors who are trained by NASA to come out into the Whoa, community and talk is, about. Not to interrupt. I you, know, right? What is you a want solar to be one, system? Don't you? Well, now I do. <laughs> I've never even heard of that before. Yeah. What is a solar system so there, ambassador? I guess they're they're folks who have been sort of vetted by NASA and JPL to kind of come out, and a lot of them are sort of amateur astronomers and enthusiasts. Um, you know, not all of them have sort of the hardcore science background, but they are sort of trained to be those kind of informal communicators. And so they'll come out and, you know, they might bring some kind of demo. There was one a couple of years ago where they came out and they had a projection of maybe the Curiosity rover on the Mars landscape and you could actually move it um, you know, you weren't moving the actual rover up on Mars, oh. but you were could move the projection <laughs> and sort of talk about some of the challenges, you know, the engineers and the scientists have faced in sort of designing this this uh, rover and robot. And so that's pretty cool. We're going to um, have the International Society of Tardigrade Hunters. <laughs> what? Do, what you, <laughs> do you know what a tardigrade is? No. It's a little tiny creature. They're also called water bears, and they're you can see them, but they're very tiny. And um, they are found in the most extreme environments. Um, oh, I've heard of them. Then. Anywhere. Okay. I mean, like underwater. Underwater. Like I just what I I just heard on the radio. They just pulled out some like ice core from the Arctic. I don't know. I might not have the facts straight on this. And That's close there enough. were these like completely dehydrated tardigrades in there, and they basically we're able to bring them back to life and it's crazy so tardigrades have been to space they kind of you know we've sent them up on on shuttles and stuff so um so you know the connection there might not be so obvious but they bring this great tardigrade cutout and you can take your picture in the head of a tardigrade they're really cute and so all sorts of fun things um the local Tripoli Rocket Association is going to bring out some big rockets um, and talk about their group and what they do. So that's an amateur organization, right, that will come out. Um, the Cosmos Institute from UNC is going to come out and talk about cosmic rays. And so there's lots and lots of, of fun science. And we get all the science and the booze, too. And <laughs> the booze, yeah. So I think so far we have about 12 cocktail vendors. That's um, a lot. Distillers and cocktail vendors. 12, is that's quite a bit. Well, we're going to have 650 people at this event. So I also heard you guys are doing a whiskey university. So that will be a one-hour whiskey tasting and tour of different styles of whiskey and the history of whiskey production, whiskey, bourbon, rye, um, with the folks from Barristers and Brewers who do Mystic Bourbon. So that will be a kind of class that's an add-on that happens before the main event starts. We always have food checks. Man, we had a great lineup this last week. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, phenomenal dumpling truck and cousins Maine lobster and 
um, Only Burger and Baguette About It. It was awesome. I can't think off the top of my head who we have um, lined up for cocktails, but um, you know we always get great trucks out. They're really happy to come out. Um, so we'll have food trucks, and then there will be food samples. Um, Little Dipper, which is a local fondue shop, which is they're just a huge supporter of our events. And how good did that smell on Thursday night? Oh my gosh! <laughs> um, so and and a lot of their menu items are kind of space themed. Again, Little Dipper is their name. So um, they'll bring out some wonderful cheese and chocolate fondue, and we're in conversations with some other folks to, to bring out some food samples that will hopefully complement all of your yummy cocktail samples. Yeah. That's awesome. So science, food trucks, and booze. That yeah. sounds like, the, could best be better? Yeah. like the best evening ever. <laughs> How can you not like that? Absolutely. Cocktails and Cosmonauts will be one of the first events we're doing in a long time. We're going to try and use some of our outdoor exhibits. We have 80 acres of exhibits. Most of these events happen just in the main building, so people only see this tiny part of the museum. Um, So with spring coming and hopefully beautiful weather, um, we're going to try and push the event out um, to what's called Gateway Park, which is a beautiful kind of outdoor setting, um, up to our plaza um, where our cafe and our train station is and then hopefully into our butterfly house Um, so give folks the opportunity to experience our year-round tropical butterfly conservatory i gotta ask because i imagine this was probably a concern as you guys were um, coming up with the concept for this event your after hours program but has anyone ever had maybe a little bit too much to drink and I don't know, caused an issue because I imagine the majority of or pretty much everyone that's going to take part in something like cocktails and cosmonauts or the science of wine is a responsible drinker because they're going out to learn, to interact with others socially and to really be part of a really cool, hip, dynamic, professional environment where we're learning and drinking and having a good time all together but every maybe every once in a while something could get out of control maybe there's always that one weird outlier who could potentially cause a problem yeah so our our audience is super respectful and we have had almost no incidents in fact only one (laughs) only one incident and um you know, really, it was a result of the generosity of our vendors. Um, you know, <laughs> I have to say, we have a couple of vendors who are just super generous with their pours, and uh-huh. we instruct them, you know, one and a half ounce pours or whatever, depending on what the event is, and we try to keep them to that. But sometimes as the evening goes on and the vendors are really into it and people are really enjoying it, um, they get a little carried away. And so we did have one incident last year, um, but uh, I am always so impressed with how our guests conduct themselves Good. and again they're they're here for you know the science as much as the mm-hmm. the, yeah. the cocktail yeah this the isn't wine. a dive bar mm-hmm. we're not trying to get no. drunk and start yeah. fights we want to learn and enjoy ourselves absolutely so. and we're happy to call you a cab on the way home yeah. like we also are always so impressed with the you know people are making good choices and lots of you know free water and sodas for the designated drivers and you know we're happy to accommodate all of that because we want people to be safe good i think that's really awesome that's it's good to hear that you had really no issues either. really no issues yeah, yeah. That's, that's really great yeah. to hear then hopefully more institutions will get on board and right. create more interesting pretty good track learning. record yeah. yeah so there's cocktails and cosmonauts you've done um the science of wine i know up in the you're coming with science of eats mm-hmm. what else what else you have coming i'm, I'm, I'm sure there's got to be some more interesting yeah so sort of our flagship event is science of beer which will be in september um we live in such a wonderfully rich community full of craft brewers 
So that's a really fun event. We get a big crowd for it and lots of great science. Our friends at Full Steam last year brought out samples of a couple of different beers. And forgive me, I can't remember what styles they were, but they were brewed with different water. Like one, I think, was brewed with water here in Durham. And one was brewed with water that I think had been brought over from Ireland or something kind of awesome and amazing. And so they were talking about sort of the impact that water can have on flavor and color and all of that. And they were, you were able to really taste the comparison, um, which is pretty neat. You know, I suspect with the success of science of wine this year, we'll be doing that one annually. In fact, we already have put a second one on the calendar in July um, because tickets sold so quickly. And again, people may not appreciate this who had to wait in lines on Thursday, but we do try to keep the size relatively small because we know the experience changes if there's a massive crowd. Mm. So because we kept it on the smaller side, people didn't get tickets. So we've offered another one. So we'll be kind of recreating it only with a kind of summer feel in July. Um, Hopefully more kind of sangria, more crisp whites and that kind of thing. So we're excited about that. Um, But, you know, we've got a pretty, pretty solid portfolio now of events that people really look forward to that our vendors and our scientists really look forward to participating in. Since recording this episode, I had the awesome opportunity to go to the Museum of Life and Science and experience cocktails and cosmonauts and and also uh, Whiskey University. And I have to say, it's everything you thought it would be and even more. When you take science, science science-inspired cocktails, a wide-open museum, and a bunch of, you know, like-minded adults who just want to go have fun and explore and do stuff, man, you create a really, really cool environment. And just like Allison said, the whole museum was wide open. All the exhibits interactive. We're outside. We're in the butterfly garden. And there's food trucks everywhere. Really, really cool event. I even got to build my own little rocket ship. And the whole propulsion system it propelled itself with Alka-Seltzer tablets. It shot up like 30 feet in the air. Freaking super cool. I'm making paper airplanes and racing and challenging all the while drinking some really cool cocktails and and, and having a really neat experience. So, man, I want all the museums to do this. I think it is so cool. But now we're going to take a quick break. Um, I have some other friends that are doing some really neat things that I'd like you to know. And when we come back after that, we are going to hear from Dr. Marsha Penner. She's a neuroscientist up at the University of North Carolina. And she's one of the vendors who comes out to Cocktails and Cosmonauts and the Science of Wine and puts on an exhibit and talks about maybe the science of taste and why some of us are super tasters and others are non-super tasters or non-tasters. And and that kind of explains why you like certain types of beers, maybe like IPAs or stouts or, or, or whatever. So we'll be right back with more science and more alcohol. Just like the great street artist Banksy said, art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. That's what Malia Christie sets out to do with Shaded and Faded Studio. Shaded and Faded is unique, it's original, it all comes from the creative mind of Malia Christie. She specializes in abstract, figure, mixed media canvas paintings, and custom furniture creations. Check her out at www.malia-christie.com or on Facebook, search Shaded and Faded Studio.
It's the Misinformation Podcast. Zach's a stand-up comedian, Eric's a retail professional with his own brand of humor, and Adam is just looking for a place to hang out. All together, they're dudes with a home studio, too much time, and too many opinions about movies, music, current events, and anything pop culture. It's funny, it's crude, it's misinformation, it is explicit, so remember, it may not always be safe for work. Barstool philosophers gather around. It's the Wait What If podcast, hosted by Kevin Sullivan, developed around a fire pit where friends would share drinks and occupy themselves with deep questions. You know, the kind of questions that keep you up at night and make your head spin. Far out there things that make you think, huh, wait, what if? He explores things like what happens to the soul if you're teleported, observational reality, the Fermi paradox, and are ghosts real, just to name a few. Check it out, Wait What If. Now, let's get back to the show. So, I'm Dr. Marsha Penner, and I'm a lecturer in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience, and also the Director of Undergraduate Research in this department. I uh, started here at UNC almost three years ago. I came from the University of Washington, where I was a research associate and lecturer. And uh, the thing that attracted me to UNC was the students. They're awesome. And also, it's a very, very supportive environment. So when I got here, I realized that there was a lot of room for me to do the things that I love to do, which are, one, to teach undergraduates, and two, to engage the public in neuroscience fun, neuroscience activities, <laughs> learning about neuroscience, because basically all I want to do all the time is talk about neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> in, in uh, I guess, um, in what capacity? Uh, if you're out, if you're doing outreach to neuroscience, and I'm thinking, me, I, I have a bachelor's degree, um, and it's in, actually it's in criminal justice. I don't do anything with it, <laughs> but but something like neuroscience is so far outside of my scope. How do you engage somebody like me? I don't think it is outside of your scope. Neuroscience is, it affects everything we do all the time. Every millisecond of our lives, neuroscience is relevant. So when they say a brain and then they say, is that a real brain? And then you say, yeah, it is. And they're like, no, 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 that's not a real brain. Um, and then I say, yeah, that's definitely real brain. Do you want to touch it? So they get their gloves on. And then uh, what kind of brain is it? It's a human brain. No, it's not. <laughs> And so they get to see what the inside of their body might look like, which a lot of people never get to do. If you mm -hmm. don't uh, have an opportunity to do that, you kind of just have to surmise from maybe pictures in books or things you see on TV. Um, but actually getting to see something that is inside of your own body, I think, is very important and exciting for people to do. So the brain is the most important. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps somebody who's focused on the heart or kidneys might say that the heart <laughs> or the kidneys are more important, but the brain really controls everything. It is who you are. Without your brain, you don't exist as you know yourself. Right. It holds your memories, your thoughts, your emotions, everything. And so it's very easy to talk to people about the brain because they have thoughts and memories and you know, emotions, being able to talk about that with somebody who they don't need to have know the neuroanatomy or the neurochemistry, but just have a discussion about why the brain's important. What does the brain do? And here's what it looks like. Huh. 
that's that, that's interesting. I, I'm surprised. Well, maybe I'm not surprised, but that you bring a, a real brain, <laughs> a real human brain for them to, for them to play with because I've never actually seen one or oh, touched one. I'm sorry. I, I <laughs> want to though. <laughs> Come to the next after hours I am. event and I, we'll have one. I am. I will be there, um, and I want to be able to. I don't know. Poke. I don't want to poke a hole in it, but I want to be able to touch it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing thing to behold. And actually, uh, when I started out as an undergraduate myself, I was uh, gunning for an English major. I wanted to be the next Alice Munro and just be this crafter of short stories. And, you know, I was really devoted to that. I had really good mentors and that was the track I was on. And I really believed that that's what I was meant to do. And then I took uh, a class where there was a lab component. <laughs> and in the lab component, they handed me a tray with a brain, an eyeball, and a spinal cord. And that was it. I decided, forget English. I don't want to do it. I want to be a neuroscientist. Wow. It was a, you know, a moment that you know, the hair on your arm stands up when right. you realize this, this is it. So during these outreach programs and like, uh, you know, during the after hours program that you do with uh, Museum of Life and Science, I mean, you said you bring a live brain and man, I think that is so cool and I really, really want to touch one um, and play with it. But, you know, seeing it and touching it is one thing. Really understanding how it works is something completely different. So are there other uh, sort of things or activities that you do uh, with guys like me? to get a better understanding of how this, the, how the brain works. What we do, so our little group, we call ourselves Neural Connections. We thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> <laughs> I still think it's pretty clever. Um, <laughs> we talk about how the brain is wired up, and we use hands-on activities. So I think probably our most favorite activity, believe it or not, is to make pipe cleaner neurons. You know, you think, oh, really? Like, pipe cleaner activity, you'd be surprised. Yeah. Uh, adults like it. So by using the pipe cleaner model, we can build a neuron, which is a, a brain cell, and describe what each part does, and then ask them fun questions like, do you want a neuron that's fast, or do you want a neuron that's slow? And then we can show them how to make their neuron faster, have their neuron be slower, um, and then talk about, you know, your thoughts need to be really fast, or if you want to run really fast, do you need a fast neuron or a slow neuron? So it's just engaging in things, uh, activities like that, and we keep the jargon out of it as much as we can. So we mm -hmm. don't, you know, the thing that makes a neuron, potentially can make a neuron faster is the mile in sheath. Well, we don't use that terminology, right? So we just kind of talk about it in much more general terms that you can have fast neurons and slow neurons. And if you have a fast one, you can think faster and run faster. Um, so we do those sorts of things with middle school kids. It's amazing, really. Again, they ask amazing questions. I wish I, I, wish I could think of one. Um, but they have really insightful questions mm -hmm. about why things are the way that they are. Like, why does this work this way? Or how does this work? So That's again, we just try and stay away from the jargon and just engage them in thinking. Right. And I think that adults do lose that. I think you lose that. Some people do lose that very early on. There's the fear of failing or of something not working out the way you hoped it would. Um, I've had a very recent experience with that, actually. And, you know, the thing is, is you cannot be good at something or be really successful if you don't allow yourself to try new things and fail at them. 
So at these after-hour programs, um, you're classified as a vendor, but you're not really a vendor because you're not selling anything unless you're not, well, you're not even selling knowledge, you're, you're giving away knowledge. So can you talk to that? Yeah, we're not really a vendor in that we, we're not selling anything or promoting anything other than let's learn about neuroscience. And we try and fit our activities into the theme for the after hours. So the last one was science of wine. That one was a little hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've done science of beer, science of sour. Um, so we do a lot of activities around taste. Okay. Um, yeah, and so taste and smell and how taste and smell work together so that you experience a certain flavor. And we've also done some activities where uh, we show how other senses affect what you taste and what you smell. So f- vision is the number one um, because about 75 to 80% of our brain is processing visual information. We rely on our visual information much more than on other senses if we're sighted people. Um, and so uh, just looking at how something very simple like color can affect how you experience something salty or sweet. Um, so we just do very simple activities um, based around those ideas. I, I've always understood that smell played a huge role in taste. It does. Um, and I was not aware sight played as large a role. Um, I, I'm probably from my own experiences seeing something. Uh, I've it looks really great, and then I take a bite, and it's awful. It's just terrible. <laughs> so, I, so for me, I, I don't. I'm not picking that connection up as much as I pick up the smell and taste and how that works together. One of our favorite activities is to figure out if uh, the participants at the museum are super tasters or non-tasters. And you may have heard this kind of terminology before. So some people taste everything very strongly and some people not so much. And of course, there's a lot of individual variations. So it's kind of a spectrum. So uh, we have these, uh, they're called taste strips. You can order them from Amazon. Uh, you know, not nothing special or fancy. A lot of students are exposed to these even in high school or mm-hmm. biology classes um, on campus. And so the taste strips, we have a control strip and it's just paper. So when somebody puts it on their tongue and you ask them, what does that taste like? They say it tastes like paper. Okay, good. Good control. <laughs> um, the, I guess we could call the experimental taste strip, has a chemical on it that's bitter tasting. And then we get a participant to put that on their tongue. And some people have a huge reaction. Oh my goodness, that's so gross. That's so disgusting. And you know right away, it's okay, that person's a super taster. Uh-huh. And then other people put that bitter taste strip on their tongue and they taste nothing or just very faintly bitter. So that person's probably more of a non-taster. So then we do things like ask people um, what kinds of things they like to eat and we select things um, kind of in different categories. So people who are super tasters tend to dislike things that are bitter, which unfortunately means that they're going to hate things that are good for them, like kale or broccoli, right? Because those things tend to be bitter. Um, They tend to not be super keen on drinking coffee, which I can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then in terms of, so when we did the science of beer, um, we also asked people, 
what's their preferred style of beer? Do they prefer pilsners, IPAs, stouts? And super tasters tend to not prefer IPAs. And that's not surprising because they tend to be pretty bitter, right? Mm -hmm. They're hopped up. They tend to be pretty bitter. Um, Whereas non-tasters tend to prefer those things that taste a little bit stronger because they don't experience taste in such a you know, strong way. And so um, they tend to feel that, you know, bitter things are less repulsive. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, again, broccoli, kale, coffee, dark chocolate, right? Those things that we typically think of as bitter. I like all of those things. Ah. So I now know that I'm a non-taster. Well, we can... Which almost is unfortunate (laughs) because I don't want... (laughs) I want to be able to taste and appreciate. Well, the thing is, so people who are... Professional chefs tend to be non-tasters. Really? It's not that you don't taste. You do taste. It's just that it's not so strong, right? I've, I've, heur- I've yeah. heard that you can you can actually learn to taste. Is mm-hmm. that is that is that true? So if you if you like um, like connoisseur like whiskey connoisseurs, uh-huh. they can they can distinguish different yes. types of whiskeys and they can flavor characteristics and different notes and those sorts yes. of things. I've heard you can learn it. Now, how is you it? You can. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I love taste and smell. They're my favorite senses. Um, and so I think something that's really interesting about taste and smell is that they, uh, the information from your taste organ, your tongue, and smell, your nose, that information goes to memory centers in the brain. Of course, all sensory information goes to memory centers in the brain. But with uh, the case of smell in particular, it skips a relay station that other senses go through, and it actually goes directly to centers in the brain that control memory. Hmm. So if you think about how smell can evoke a very strong memory, so for example, my grandmother died 10 years ago, maybe? Nope, more. It was more than that, maybe 12 years ago. And I have some things of hers that I've put away. They're in sealed bags, but when I open them up, I know exactly what that smell is. It's the smell of her apartment. Even though I haven't smelled that smell in at least 12 years, I know what that smell is. It smells like my grandmother's apartment. Mm -hmm. So again, smell goes directly into those memory centers and you remember those things very clearly. So a lot of people say that smell memory or being exposed to a smell can evoke a very powerful memory. And oftentimes those those memories tend to be emotional memories or tied to something that's emotional. So I think that's really exciting about um, smell. And then taste and smell combine to give you the experience of flavor. So um, when you put something in your mouth, your you know saliva is kind of helping to make sure that your taste receptors can detect what's in your mouth. You're also kind of inhaling some of those molecules up into your nose. And then those two things combined give you the sense of flavor. So, you know, those two things combined then also the, you know, whatever flavor you're experiencing at that time, you also make a memory of that, right? Oh, this flavor is, you know, whatever flavor you tend to like. And so again, those things go into the memory center. And later on, when you experience something that's similar, or maybe the same thing, you have a memory of that thing, right? And so you can compare it. So then people who are uh, specialists at certain things. So your example was whiskey. I would even say beer connoisseurs. They can be pretty picky. They yep. can say they can tell you, you know, they'll take a sip of a beer, and without looking at the label, they can say, oh, okay, in this particular beer, they use Simcoe hops, right? And right. you think, how the heck does that person know that? <laughs> it's because 
you know, just like any other kind of learning mm-hmm. over a few trials, you know, of tasting some co-hops a few times and you think, oh, okay, I think I know what that tastes like. And then the next time you taste something and, and you recall the memory and if it matches, you're like, okay, yeah, that's definitely some co-hops. It's like any other kind of learning that we do. We're exposed to something and if we're exposed to it a few times, mm-hmm. our brain will build a, you know, a memory of that thing to compare other things to later. But it's not just an uh, an emotional response. Sometimes it can be a physical response. I think we all may have had some friends or perhaps our own personal experiences where you might drink too much. Oh. Um, and the first one that comes to mind is generally tequila. Gin. Uh, so, okay, so <laughs> the gin for you. <laughs> and you and they're like cheap tequila. If I sm- if I smell it, uh-huh. I, it invokes a memory. It, yep. in, it invokes an emotional response. And in some cases, for some people, a physical response. It's adaptive, mm-hmm. right? It's that kind of physical response that you're experiencing when you smell something that's previously made you ill is an adaptive response. Your body is trying to keep you safe. So your brain says, hey, wait a minute. Remember what happened last time? Don't do it. And so that's it, there's a name for that. It's called conditioned taste aversion. All animals, as far as I know, at least mammals, have basically a one trial learning experience. So they consume something and if they get sick within a very short time window after they've consumed it, they will avoid consuming that thing in the future. It happens to people, as you know, mm-hmm. cheap tequila, for me it was gin, um, still can't drink gin. Um, but I'll, in the laboratory, the way that we would study that with a rat So rats are neophobic. They don't like new things. And that's especially true for food um, because they can't barf. So if they consume something that is really bad for them, there's no way for them to get rid of it by barfing it up. So they're very hesitant to take new things. So um, it's very difficult to get rats to take things, even like chocolate milk. They really like sweet things. um, And so you kind of have to coax them. And then once they've realized, okay, it's not going to make me sick, then they'll drink copious amounts of it. But what you can do then is give them some chocolate milk and then inject them with lithium chloride, which makes them feel queasy for a little while. And then the next day, give them the option of having some chocolate milk, which they previously loved. And some rats will be like, forget it. That Hmm. made me sick last time and I am not consuming that. Wow. Yeah. And so it's, again, very, very powerful one trial learning and it tends to last a very long time. And again, it's adaptive, right? It keeps us safe. It prevents us from consuming things that have previously made us ill. Survival tool. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. So I think it's obvious that you're a fan of the after hours program that Life and Science puts on. Um, But can you talk a little bit more to why that is? So the North Carolina Museum of Life and Science, I think, is one of the most spectacular places to go and do fun activities hands-on, right? And so it's set up for families to go, which I think is really important. I think it's great for parents to bring their kids out to a venue like that and then together discover things. So Everything about the North Carolina Museum of Life and Science, I think, is amazing. Their programming is amazing. Their activities are amazing. They've just so carefully thought through what they wanted to do with that space and have just delivered an amazing space for people to explore. So um, there's that part of it. 
the after hours things. Um, so I myself, I love interacting with children, but I myself don't have any. And when I'm uh, out socializing, specifically, you know, having some beer or a glass of wine, I don't necessarily want to be in a space where there's kids, mm-hmm. right? I'd like to be able to kind of just sit back, relax, drink my beer or my wine and um, not worry about, you know, children running around and, you know, not being disruptive necessarily, but sometimes it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the after hours, I think, is a great opportunity for people who maybe are not so keen about being around other uh, or uh, being around other people's children or maybe even their own children um, <laughs> while they're wanting to be an adult because obviously drinking is something that adults do. And so I think the after hours was really brilliant um, to allow adults to be in that space and to interact with all the exhibits um, and not have to worry about minding children, right? Right. So you, uh, for the after hours events, you can go and interact with all of the exhibits and the vendors and have a fabulous time exploring what they have, which I think is an amazing opportunity if you don't want to be there on a Saturday when it's, you know, full of families and (laughs) that's right yeah yeah (laughs) why do people drink you know so for people who are social drinkers it's because they can socialize with other people over a couple of beers and yeah i mean your inhibitions are lowered a little bit you do tend to be a little bit more chatty right feel you know kind of a little bit euphoric maybe Mm -hmm. um and so yeah it absolutely lowers the inhibitions and i feel like for adults at the beginning of an event before people have had a beer or a glass of wine you know people can be a little bit stiff when we try and engage them with our activities not everybody but some people and they're really hesitant to you know really get in there and do stuff with us or answer questions um, or ask questions more importantly but after they've had a beer or a glass of wine then um we definitely see the crowd kind of loosen up and want to engage um, and have, they, they just have a better time with us. Um, you know, they tend to be more open. They want to talk about their experiences as it relates to the activity or to neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's a, an amazing way to, again, allow adults to kind of experience the wonder that's available there at the museum. And then with us, um, when we pull out the human brain, they tend to, you know, adults really is the only age group where we get a lot of, oh, that's disgusting. I'd never (laughs) touch that. Kids almost never uh, react like that. But, you know, after they've had a beer or a glass of wine, then they're like, okay, yeah, I want to put some gloves on and hold that. That's amazing. This is a human brain. Wow. This is what my brain looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, that's really exciting. It's also, it's um, very rewarding for us because, you know, when our audience is engaged with us like that, we're also having a really good time so we don't get to drink while we're there but that's okay there is a certain mindset where it's like drinking is bad when you drink you become a drunk and then you're stumbling home on the streets and it's not really and it's not like that so you can still have a drink or two and still learn a lot and and meet new people and have a good time uh and explore and and i don't i think that's wonderful i think it's great i think it's great that you support it i also think it's neat and I'm just kind of curious what, because you bring your students. I do. Some of your graduate students, right? To the, they're or, undergraduates. Oh, they're undergrads. Yeah. So you're bringing them yeah. uh, to also support the program. So, But they have to be 21 they and do. up. Okay, yeah. so that was my next question, though. So what do you do with an 18-year-old yeah. that just graduated high school? <laughs> Can't bring them. No, so um, 
the students that I bring are 21 and up. A couple of times we've had students, you know, who like they're counting down the days till their 21st birthday so they can come to the event. Yeah, they're like, two weeks, I'll be able to go to the next That's event. Right. Yeah, they're really excited. So I actually think it's a great way for, you know, in this country, I think that drinking responsibly is not something that is modeled very well. You know, it's very much like you you can't drink until you're 21. Um, that's the law and that's how it's going to be. And then, you know, kids get to college and there's, there is alcohol available in this environment. And sometimes there's not somebody there to police it to say, oh, well, you're 19, you can't have this. Like, you can't drink from this keg, right? And so if you don't have a model in any way or have been exposed to how adults can drink responsibly, I think that it's difficult then to figure out on your own, what does responsible drinking really look like? So in taking my students to these events, um, you know, here's a model. We're in a museum and we're having a really fabulous time learning and you know, this is how one can have a drink or two um, in this environment. Uh, st- you know, nobody's nobody there gets drunk or, you know, you don't see somebody intoxicated there. People mind, you know, what they've been drinking. They have to get home afterwards. And so my students get to see this is what responsible drinking can look like. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's really important. I do think about that very carefully. And I did before we went to the first event. Is this something that I should expose my students to? And in thinking it through, I thought, yeah, because this is what, you know, if you are in fact going to consume alcohol, this hopefully is how you'll do it responsibly. So before we go, I got to ask, because alcohol does some pretty interesting things to the brain. We all know it as a downer, um, but something interesting happens when we first start drinking it and we lower inhibitions and we get a little bit more adventurous and we're a bit more chatty, like we mentioned before, but it also has this uh, downer sort of effect. So what is it doing to the brain? Alcohol has a biphasic effect. Initially, people tend to feel euphoric, very chatty. Um, you know, you you almost feel, you know, it's it's stimulating, right? But then after you've had maybe a couple too many beers, then you experience the depressant effects of alcohol. So in fact, alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. And what I mean by that is that it affects um, a neurotransmitter system uh that is important for inhibiting activity. So it's called GABA. And so initially, when you have some amount of alcohol in your bloodstream, right, and your brain is affected by that, um, then some GABA is GABA receptors um, are affected in the brain. And so um, not, not all the GABA receptors and not in all parts of the brain are affected initially. And so the effect is this feeling of euphoria, being chatty, lowered inhibition. But then as your blood alcohol level continues to rise, then you affect more and more and more of these GABA receptors in the brain. And so what you end up with then is depressing the activity or inhibiting the activity in the central nervous system um, all over the brain, right? So the effect becomes much more widespread and the outcome is, um, you know, slurred speech, um, difficulty with moving, you know, if you drink a lot, um, difficulty forming new memories, right? So people who get blackout drunk, their GABA system has depressed 
enough activity in the brain so that you're not actually able to form a new memory. All right, listeners, that's the sound of last call. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoy drinking and socializing and learning in an adult environment, I encourage you to seek out museums in your area that host similar programs to the After Hours program at the Museum of Life and Science in Durham, North Carolina. They are so much fun and really feeds the desire to learn and be curious. I want to send a special thank you to both our guests, Allison Campbell and Dr. Marsha Penner, both amazing ladies doing incredible things in their community. If you live near Durham, North Carolina, check out the museum's website page for upcoming after-hours programs at www.lifeandscience.org. Or, better yet, visit the museum. Also, don't forget, check out the Make It A Double Facebook page. Just search Make It A Double. Give it a like. It's the best way to stay up to date on new episodes and learn interesting facts about the drinks you enjoy the most. Until next time, salud. Can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to the cocktails and cosmonauts. Oh, I'm so glad. I think I think so you'll awesome. I think you'll be pleased. It'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> I want to see the rockets and I want to do all that stuff. <laughs> Come and geek out with us. That's I'm, what we're all about. Yes, <laughs> we will definitely be coming and geeking out and having fun and eating and drinking and learning science stuff. So I'm so excited. Awesome. <laughs>